Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Angular Story. We're also going to double this up on my JavaScript story since uh, Alex was on JavaScript Jabber and on Adventures in Angular. Um, just to give you a brief uh, outline, and, and then, you know, Alex, you can fill in the gaps of who you are and what you're sort of well known for as we do the show. Um, you were on episode 167 of JavaScript Jabber with Jonathan Turner. We talked about TypeScript and Angular. And uh, you were also on Adventures in Angular. Uh, as we record this, it actually comes out tomorrow. Um, and we talked about the Angular build tools, convergence, ABC, uh, Bazel, and all of that great stuff. Um, now, you're on the Angular team, and uh, you've contributed in, in several ways. Um, do you want to just give a little bit more uh, background or introduction? Anything else people should know about you? Sure. Um, so yeah, I've been at Google for almost 10 years, nine and a half now. Uh, and I spent most of that time working on development tools. Although, uh, until three years ago when I joined the Angular team, I was working in Java. So mostly deploying backends. I worked on one front end for one of our tools. Um, but for the most part, I was doing like distributed backend kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, it's been, I was, I was really lucky to, to find Mishko and get back on the Angular team. Nice. Well, um, we're going to talk about you, your story, how you got into JavaScript and Angular and all that stuff. But before we do that, I'm curious, how did you get into programming? Hmm. I'm, that's a good question. I, 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 was, I was late to it. I started off in high school not really doing programming. I had friends who did, and I, I had a Unix account, which was a big deal back in 1996, but um, I didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, so I went to college. I just did the intro CS class. Um, it seemed fun. I kind of ended up by the end of my uh, freshman year, I had to pick a major. So I would I would have liked to do computer engineering, but at Harvard they didn't have that at least at the time. I don't know if they do now. Because um, I was kind of interested in like circuit boards and soldering all the way through um, software. Uh, so um yeah, I mean, I I didn't really do any serious programming, even even through college. I just did assignments for class, but I didn't have any side projects. Gotcha. So 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 you mainly found programming in college then. Yes, that's interesting. Right. It's it's funny because as as I talk to people, you know, some people it's college, some people it's I you know I did this other thing and found programming. And uh, so it's always interesting to me to just see the the various and, uh, you know, different ways that people got into programming. 
Yeah, I mean, I had I had friends who did it very many different ways. Um, but uh, yeah, I just didn't have that much of a plan in high school. <laughs> it's kind of too bad. I mean, it's too bad because, like, I you know, I, I definitely have a lot of a lot of peers at work who were very active from when they were young, and so they have a lot more. You know, they have maybe ten years more history of of um, all the different all the different languages and platforms that have come past than than I have. Right. So uh, from there, how did you get around to JavaScript? So I think this is actually an interesting story. So I started at Google. Um, first of all, I wasn't sure I wanted to take the job uh, because it was for software engineer and test, which to me was like, oh, is that really a software engineer? So Brad Green, who manages the Angular team, called me over 10 years ago, first person I talked to at Google, and convinced me that software engineer and test actually is a pretty important job because... Um, and I, you know, now looking back, I totally understand his argument. Um, one of the hardest things to do is to make your software um, well tested and, um, you know, be able to reliably ship it and have confidence that it works. And that's actually one of the hardest things to do. So, so Brad convinced me to join Google. So then I was working like my first week. I met Mishko, who, uh, as, as probably most of you know, is the guy who started Angular. Um, and he had this crazy side project. And he says, "Okay, your starter project is change the build system so that we can produce." Um, this extra information so that we can tell people why their Java code, why their code is not testable. Uh, and this we started in Java. So I had Mishko there my first week. Uh, he was, you know, a little intimidating, but this was a long time ago. Um, we had some fun together. He, he was interested in my keyboard layout. So as I, I typed Dvorak. Um, mm. And so Mishko switched to Dvorak. And then Brad was kind of mad at me because Mishko was uh, not very productive for, I don't know, about a month. He, he switched pretty quickly, though. <laughs> um, so, so moving on with the story. Um, so then Mishko, uh, started to disappear in the mornings and, uh, like was working on something downstairs that he said was like an HTML compiler that runs in the browser. And that sounded dumb. So, uh, we were like, well, that would be nice if you came back to work more. Um, and, uh, it turns <laughs> out he was starting AngularJS. Um, but at the same time, I was really interested in learning more about um, agile development practices. Um, and I had a chance to move on to this team that worked on um, showing results uh, from the build tool. And so I went off to do that for uh, whatever, six, seven years. Um, so then it was just by luck I kept in touch with Mishko and um, I had met Igor a couple times. And they said, hey, we're working on... Um, I actually don't remember who approached who, but they were working on AtScript, which was our own language before uh, before TypeScript came and saved our butts. Um, mm -hmm. And so that just sounded interesting. I had tinkered with languages. Actually, when I when I left Musco's team the first time, I was playing with writing my own language called NoOp, and I wrote an interpreter in Scala, and I was just trying. I hadn't done any of that in college, so I was just curious. You know, I'm kind of a grammar nerd. Um, so it just so happened that by the time the Angular team was working on language stuff, and I was I was ready to move off of what I was working on, so. Um, I, I actually didn't know any JavaScript, really. Um, I mean, I read JavaScript, The Good Parts by Douglas Crockford. Um, but uh, I, I joined the Angular team just to learn language stuff. And I had to kind of learn. I learned TypeScript and JavaScript at about the same time. Um, so I think it's a pretty atypical story for somebody who works in the Angular community. Yeah, definitely. It, you know, it seems like most people, they get into web development and then they they find something that they really dig. And that's more or less how how things work out right they they get a framework they yeah and and just step by step they kind of work their way in um yeah and i think 
front end's a lot more approachable than than most back end languages and stacks. Um, so it makes sense. I think a lot of people start there. So yeah, I definitely went backwards. I just I don't like to be typecast as one thing. Um, and you know, until I get too old to learn new things, I want to keep learning new things. No, I totally get that. So uh, what was it about JavaScript then that appealed to you once you got into it? I don't know if anything about JavaScript has ever appealed to me. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's a little harsh. Um, <laughs> I mean, so I, I'm, I'm really glad that I, I came on as we were migrating Angular to TypeScript. Um, so, you know, at this point I have written programs in vanilla JavaScript, mostly that run on Node.js actually, mm-hmm. since I work on build switching. Um, I certainly never got into using browsers as a way of accessing applications. I remember like the day Chrome came out was actually my first day at Google or the day they announced it. And I said, oh, this is great because I'm sure they will do the feature where if I want to go to my bank, I just like my bank will be a separate application on my desktop and my command tab will switch to it. And I won't just have all these browser tabs that look anonymous. Uh, so that didn't happen. I, I you know, I, I, I don't really enjoy using browsers that much and I don't really uh, and certainly there are all these quirks about the JavaScript language that we that we all kind of have learned to hate uh, and love at the same time. Um, yeah. So, you know, fortunately, since I came in when we had TypeScript, we already had ES6 classes. I didn't have to learn that much about the old iffy based like function scoping for variables. And um, so I've had I've had the nicer things from the beginning, obviously, the type system. Um, so I, I think it's uh, I've been I've been perfectly happy working in JavaScript and TypeScript, but. Like really, practically speaking, all, my, all the code that I write every day runs in Node.js, so it's just it's just one of any any number of tools that we could choose to write this stuff in. Right, that makes sense. Um, so, are most of your contributions then to open source in the build tools arena? Yes, uh, pretty much exclusively. Um, I've ever since. Uh, for the last for the last seven years or so, I've I've focused exclusively on developer tools. Um, so integrating things like static analysis, linters, compilers with the development workflow all the way through. I was the tech lead for Google's continuous integration system for a couple of years. Um, so everything in between, like the developer sits down and wants to type on the keyboard until the software ships to a user, is what I consider my my realm. Um, once the software is on the user's desktop and your stuff is running, then I don't really care that much anymore. Mm, gotcha. So what is it about build tools then that appeals to you, you know, over, I guess, ordinary, regular web development or other types of development, maybe mobile or whatever? I really enjoy having other developers as my user, it turns out. And I really enjoy the data set I work on being code. Um, as, as kind of a language geek, um, I, I, I don't really, I'm much more compelled to work on an application where I'm inputting your code and then outputting other code, or I'm, um, you know, you, there's some property that you want to verify of your program, and I write things to help you verify that. Um, I don't know. I think it's, it's I, I really enjoy having more immediate feedback from my users. Like my users are people on the Angular team or other people at Google. Um, certainly other engineers. So like the bug reports I get are from engineers. I don't have a layer of, of, of product management or UX in between. Um, so yeah, for whatever reason, that's it's just, I find that much more enjoyable. That makes sense. So you, what, what systems have you worked on that we're, we would have heard of in the Angular or uh, JavaScript communities? 
Uh, so I've worked on a, on a bunch of things. Um, so one of my big projects has been um, making it possible to change uh, to, to well, working at scale uh, is is really um, is really my angle. Since I work on the on Google's development tools, everything that we write has to work for um, a pretty large you know TypeScript code base. All of Google's code is in one repository, and so you need you need you need tools that can scale. So so one thing was, okay, every time we introduce a new version of TypeScript, and we actually just rolled one out today, we just got all of Google on TypeScript 6, which is exciting. I know we're one version behind now. So how do we do that? How do we how do we change all of Google's code so that I can just flip a switch and now TypeScript 2.6 is the only version we use at all of Google? So we had to write some refactoring tools. So one of my side projects was I had an intern, Scott Wu, and we worked on TS Lint. So we added the ability for it to produce fixes, and we added the ability for it to use TypeScript's type system. So it actually has the type checker available when it's running Lint passes. And that enabled us to write lint checks that we can essentially just automate the, the the fixing and roll it out to all of Google. So working at TS Lint has been has been exciting. Um, and then related to that, well, okay, maybe that's a longer story. Let me let me try and hold that one. <laughs> uh, so what what other stuff have I worked on in the in the TypeScript ecosystem? So I've been working on making Angular work under Bazel, um, which is the build tool that we use at Google. Um, I've made a couple of contributions upstream to TypeScript itself, um, and I've consulted with the team a little bit about things like how to make the type system safer for optimizers um, and how to display warnings versus errors. And so far, we don't have warnings, which I think is a good idea. And so I've been I've been pretty active in the um, in the in the the workflow space of like how do, how do I how do I make sure I don't introduce something wrong into my program? So how do I either one make the compiler just prevent something or two, I'm going to have warnings, but I want to only see warnings on things I just introduced. Um, or three, um, more like informational things like, did I make the binary size bigger by accident with my last commit? Um, so I've been working, I, I've been contributing upstream to a bunch of different projects that, that where, where we just needed some new feature. Um, I've also been working with the Circle CI team to make improvements to for for Angular to use in Circle CI. So yeah, basically anywhere anywhere in the in the build tool stack, I've I've been trying to contribute back. Gotcha. What what is it like working with JavaScript build tools as opposed to Java build tools and some of the other systems that you've worked with in the past? The big difference is the JavaScript ecosystem is so dynamic, um, and I guess you know I, I use the word dynamic. I'll, I mean. Obviously, that has two meanings, right? One is that at runtime, we do a lot of metaprogramming, um, which you could call monkey patching. Um, and, but the other is that there's there's a new project doing bundling or code splitting or minification all the time. There's a ton of enthusiasm. Things move fast, um, much faster than in in like a backend ecosystem and, and probably faster than most enterprise ecosystems. Um, so a lot of the challenge is actually maintaining some amount of stability for users and still pushing the envelope of the kind of capabilities that we need um, with things like making lazy loading work at the symbol level, for example, so that like even we don't even have to pull an entire file for the first page view if you don't use that whole file. Um, so we have we have a lot of demands of what we want out of the ecosystem. Um, I guess the other thing that's interesting working in JavaScript is that it's it's been such an insulated environment because you expect that all of the tools that you use have to run in a browser and therefore you don't have any other runtime available and you can't mix and match tools from other languages very easily. 
Um, and that extends, I think, to even in the design space, there's a lot of things in JavaScript where um, it's just it, we're, we're not reusing parts of the of, of the ecosystems from other tools where we could be. Um, so I'm also really interested in finding some of the really cool innovations and, well, and, and, you know, technology that's even been around for a while, but things that just haven't made their way into the JavaScript ecosystem and bridging that gap. Cool. Very cool. So uh, what are you working on now? Hmm. So many things. So we have a, we have a project inside of the TypeScript compiler. One thing I'm really excited about called Seed which is the like a CC fly. So it starts with TS and it's a bug is the, the reason for that name. <laughs> so basically uh, this project is, okay, so I like that TypeScript added like dash dash strict function types or no implicit any or all these other flags you can turn on to tighten your TypeScript code. Uh-huh. Um, but what if I have one of those that I want to add either because I can't convince the TypeScript team to add it first party or it only applies to an API within my company. And so there's no reason that this belongs in first party. Um, how do I add my own dash dash strict check? So you might say, oh, just do that with TS lint. The problem is that I don't want to enforce that the lint is always uh, is always clean because that turns all lint warnings into errors. And it means that developers have to fix their lints before they can code, which I think is the wrong experience. Like if you have to fix your missing semicolons before you can run your tests, it um, it's the wrong bar for a code that's not ready to go yet. Um, but you know, in some cases, something really should be an error. And so what I really want is the, is for the compiler to enforce it. So I want the same, the same sort of thing that TypeScript team does upstream. We can now contribute our own third party strictness checks, um, basically. So for example, it's now illegal at Google, like it's a compile error to call a method like map.filter and throw away the return value thinking that it mutated its argument when it doesn't. Um, so there's just, there's a, and, and there's a lot of classes of bugs like this. Um, I started a project in Java that does the same thing, and it was really successful. And and there are now dozens of checks that we have turned on um, for for all the Java code at Google. And so uh, I really wanted to port that to TypeScript. So that's something I'm working on in the background. And I'm also trying to get more contributors in the community ramped up on on more side projects. So uh, one thing we did is in Prettier, which is the code formatter. Well, let me step back for just a second and explain when you when you have some invariant you want about your code, if you make it a, re- a hard requirement for all the code in the repo, like if your enforcement of your formatting, for example, is that all the code in the repo is formatted according to the current formatting, then how do you ever introduce a formatter? How do you ever upgrade it or change its configuration in a really big repo? You can't make all the fixes um, all at once. Uh, and even if you could, you would really pollute your blame layer. Like you have all these changes that are, that are, you know, attributed to you just because you rolled out a new version of the formatter. And now it's like, it's annoying for me to find like who changed this line most recently. Um, so one of, one of the side projects is, okay, so we need to fix all the formatters and all the static analyzers in the world to only look at your changes. So prettier. Now we have a capability of only running prettier on the modified regions, according to your Git um, stage. And um, and I also want to do the same thing with static analysis tools. So like linters should only report on code that you've just changed. Um, and that's all really important at scale so that you can just turn on a new lint check and it only affects newly introduced code after that point. Okay. I mean, that makes sense to me. You know, you, you run it against, yeah, a huge code base and then, and then, yeah, you go make a big set of changes and, and yeah. Who actually yeah. wrote this? Well, we don't know because Chuck was the last person that went in and changed it because of the the lint checker. Right. 
And the other, I mean, and a, a, a formatter is easy is easy to just blanket apply across the code base. But if you want to turn on something like a TypeScript flag, like no implicit any, um, I went to a big enterprise client. They had no idea how they could possibly turn that flag on because nobody has time to do all the work to make the code con- like compile again after they make that breaking change. Yeah. So I think so. One of my one of my one of the things I'd like to contribute is is to sort of blanket fix this problem and make it possible to um, make new assertions about your code, like your build size or your your the the amount of coverage that your typings have, mm-hmm. uh, and do it incrementally. It's all about incrementality. Makes sense to me. Yeah. So in um, particular, I'm I'm curious. You know, we talked about the the Bazel integration and the build to build tool convergence for Angular. Um, so, so how do you approach that? Because um, by default, at this point, the Angular CLI uses Webpack, and so you know mm-hmm. people people are going to have to make some kind of movement, right? I mean, I, I'm guessing your old projects will just keep working, but if I start a new project, is it just going to by default do the build tool uh, with Bazel, or do I get a pick? And then do you wind up maintaining two pipelines for people? So we're still figuring that out. Um, I guess in the context of, uh, you know, for anybody who didn't already listen to Adventures in Angular that comes out tomorrow, um, Bazel is the build tool we use at Google, and I've worked for the last couple of years for internally, this is the only thing we use to build Angular apps. And it's a problem for the Angular team that it's different from what people externally use um, because we have to do more support. And also it has some nice properties that we think would be nice in the external environment. Um, so yeah, so the question is if you have, if you have CLI today, um, like it, it produces an app and uses Webpack under the covers, but if you haven't run ng eject, then you, you don't have any exposure to the Webpack configuration. So this is actually the reason that CLI is so opinionated is, was to allow us to change the build tool. And in fact, this happened once before, if you used, um, I forget how long ago this was, but a couple of years, uh, early versions of the CLI did before Webpack, um, used a build tool called Broccoli that comes out of the Ember community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we switched it, and nobody had to know. So, in theory, if you have a, um, if you if you haven't ejected from from the Angular CLI, then we could change the build tool um, as long as it's backwards compatible, um, and as long as the CLI team is able to do the you know to support all the users and make not not break anything, we could change the build tool. Um, that being said, I think the 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 approach that we're taking right now is probably more what you said to have two parallel options for a while, um, partly because uh, the Bazel tool is not yet at, at like, we don't yet have the convenience level that you have with the CLI. Um, so we want to make sure you don't have to hand author any configuration files. Um, and also, I think enterprises are more interested in um, anybody who has a, a long development round trip time is the, is the first target for using Bazel. And that's um, it's more important to get it rolled out to those to those users first, and then it is to roll it out to everybody. That makes sense. So one other thing that occurs to me with a lot of the build tools out there, you know, and uh, I'm counting in there like the static analysis tools, you know. So you mentioned linters and things like that. Um, there are others that that pick up different other uh, qualities of your code and can point out, you know, potential problem areas and things like that. As you build these, it seems like a lot of people, they want to run some of it locally on their development machine and some of it um, sort of out there on a CI machine. And then, you know, possibly they either uh, do the build on the CI machine and then use some kind of continuous deployment 
or in a lot of cases they just kind of check out the code on the on the uh, production server and then they run the build out there so since you have different kinds of targets how do you make a build tool work across all of those environments so in in theory the build tool is this is a separate layer you could have used grunt and then switched to gulp uh, and you could change your build tool again and no matter where you're running like as long as the build tool is installed on that machine, you should be able to take your inputs, all of your source files, and turn it into whatever outputs are your are the distribution that you that you run or you ship or you put on the CDN. Um, so I think the build tool itself doesn't really care. In fact, the build tool itself doesn't know if it's running on a CI machine or on your local workstation. Um, but there is a fair amount of like workflow glue that does have to go in in there right so like if the ci machine says oh the build broke um does it just dump you the the standard out from running the build tool um that's not a great experience you have to dig through this really long thing your errors at the bottom like i know on angular's build like whenever i go to travis i click okay what's the breakage and then i wait for it to download the first five megabytes of the log before i see the error at the end yeah um so this is the kind of place where i do think um uh we we can th- that there are interactions between the build tool and its environment that we can actually make things work really nicely. Um, so for that problem I was just describing, Bazel actually produce uh, gives you a separate file for the standard error and standard out of each compiler that it invoked or each test tool that it ran. So if you had a test failure on CI, you would just see the output from running this one Karma process on these JS files as opposed to seeing the entire log. Um, so I am I am working on some stuff like that that. Um, uh, and, and I should point out, this is uh, that UI you can already see. Um, this like uh, Google Cloud has a UI that's that shows you the results of Bazel builds, and also anybody else could build such a thing using the API that it has for for streaming out events. Um, so I think that's that's just one example of a project where um, we can do we, we can do really awesome integrations between the build tool and its environment. Um, but I think your question is more like, what about the table stakes? Like, how do we even switch build tools if our old build tool was hooked into like the continuous deployment in some way? Um, and yeah, that is disruptive. If you if you had like some Gulp specific glue that like listened for some event out of like the Gulp produces and then use that to trigger a deployment, then you would need to rewrite that glue so that you get an event from the different build tool and use that to automate the deployment. Um, it's, a, you know, as much as possible, hopefully the layering is such that your scripts don't interact closely with the build tool, but if they do, then yeah, those, those are places that have to change. Yeah, that makes sense. So are there any other things that you're working on, even on the side that, uh, you know, aren't necessarily the things that we've brought up? Boy, we brought up a lot of different projects. Um, yeah. Uh, no, I think, um, I mean, I, I've, I've touched on all of them. There's a lot more detail there. Um, I, I, I just last week or two started reaching out to some people in the community to get more help to push these projects forward. The big thing that we're missing right now, if I had to just to, to, you know, like what, what else is there? I was explaining earlier how you only want to see the results from the linter that are things that you just, you just affected. And, and there are projects like, um, ESLint staged. Uh, that you can use to just run the linter on the files that you've touched locally, but it's still at the file level. And what you really want, you like, you don't want to see all the warnings in a file. Like if you're on the TypeScript team, their files are like 20,000, 25,000 lines long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we really need is for somebody to make, and I've, well, I've seen a couple examples of this. So we have to, we have to integrate with one of these services that can make robot comments on GitHub code reviews. 
So the right thing to do with static analysis tools is to run them in the code review and show them as comments. Um, just imagine these being like expert tools. You're like, okay, if I do a code review, do I have to point out all of these nits? Well, we've solved the problem with formatting. I don't have to point out formatting nits anymore if my team has signed on to use a formatter. Um, but formatter is easy because we can just blanket apply it uh, when you check in your code. Things like lint warnings, I can't just blanket fix them without asking. And so then it's the, the thing we're missing is a way to hook up these, the, the warning type static analysis tools um, into the code review so that they only show up on your changed lines. That's the project I would like to start if I had more time. <laughs> nice. Well, maybe you'll inspire somebody to pull that together for you. Yeah, I'm, I actually have, I've been enjoying sort of mentoring people from the community and to the extent that, uh, that I have the right idea for how to formulate some of these things, I, I hope I can share that. Yeah, makes sense. And, and I love the idea of mentoring as well. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, if you're mentoring somebody to build another, um, you know, code build stage tool, um, I mean, how much involvement do you actually have? Do you wind up writing code on their projects? Or is it mostly, oh, well, I would look at this next and then they run off and do a bunch of work and then come back and, you know, kind of report in and get the next stage of help? It, it depends on the contributor. I mean, you know, somebody who's really junior needs a lot more handholding. Yeah. And I, I, I basically can't find the time to ramp up somebody from scratch. Um, so for the most part, what I try to do with my interactions is, first of all, like suggest the high level design, maybe encourage the person to write up the design because it's always really good practice. Everybody should practice writing. It's one of the most important things you can do in our job because um, writing software is easy, but dealing with other people is hard. And once you like at a certain point, your problems are mostly people problems. So I try to encourage people to write design docs. And then usually if we, in many cases, we're, we're fixing or augmenting something that's already in somebody's open source project, like with TSLint, for example. So I usually encourage the person, okay, let's first open an issue and like get on board and like, you know, do the people thing and be like, and, and establish that we're credible and we have a good, a good plan for this and they're willing to accept the contribution and we'll work together on code reviews. And, um, and then, then, uh, then, yeah, then, then, then it's, then they start writing code. I don't, I haven't had a lot of time to, to, um, to sort of pair program, uh, with contributors. I wish that was easier. Uh, I would love to, I, I hope that like stack blitz will have, um, collaborative editing, you know, like in the, in the Google docs style, that would be an awesome way to pair program with people. So, Hey, whoever's at stack blitz listening, please do that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. We've had them on, uh, both adventures in Angular and JavaScript Jabber. So. Yeah, they have a party this week in in San Francisco. So, for 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 the for the fact that Angular.io now uses Stackblitz for all of the examples. So maybe I'll find yeah. somebody in corner and ask them to do that. There you go. Not not corner them. I'll I'll give them a plenty of chances to escape. But I be <laughs> awesome. There you go. Yeah, I know that uh, they announced um, collaborative coding stuff for Visual Studio Code. And we've talked about that on JavaScript Jabber and stuff as well. So. Oh yeah, I've, I I haven't gotten a chance to play with that. Um, that sounds great too. I, I don't think there's that high of a a barrier to entry for somebody to fire up VS Code instead of doing it on Stackblitz. Yep. Yeah, I should I should try that with some with one of my contributors. Yeah, I, I'd be curious to see you know how it works for how you use it you know and compare that to how I would approach something like that, but. 
Yeah, I guess, I, I, I mean, if it shares the terminal, then that's pretty fantastic, actually. That's more convenient than like a screen sharing thing. But it's really important that both people be able to type. Otherwise, you, um, like, it's it's so great to be able, especially if you're doing test-driven development. Um, I really like the, the the style where I say, okay, so let's see, what's the right test? And I think, I, w- I wish everybody would start from thinking, like, what's the right test for this thing I'm about to do? even if you don't actually do test-driven development, because it's so hard to get the right test fixture after the fact. Yeah. Because you're thinking, okay, what what is it what is that I actually care about this code doing? People write unit tests, and I've written about how um, a lot of people write change detector tests, which is just your unit test is a mimic of the production code. You just mock out each thing and say first it does this thing, thing one, and then it does thing two. So your unit test doesn't actually, your unit test doesn't have any assertions other than, like, here's what the content of the production code says. Um so if, if people do a good job thinking about like what is it that I want to test, then if I had a pair programming environment, then I would I would first I would write the test and then I would say okay now you make the test pass and then you you can switch roles. Um, that's a really great way to mentor somebody, um, even even like mid level developer, um, because uh, yeah, doing tests at the end is total recipe for failure. Interesting, I agree, but it's interesting to hear you put it that that way. All right. Well, the last segment of this show is picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about? This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a 7-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash myangularstory. Well, I, okay, so... Here's here's the thing I want. Um, so I'm into I'm into electronic music, um, like electronic dance music. Uh, and I like I like making music, but but computers make me worn out, especially after all these projects we just talked about and so many different things to work on. Um, so uh, there's this company, Teenage Engineering, uh, and they make a series of little like handheld and desktop um, sequencers uh, and like synthesizers. Um, uh, and the smallest one is this pocket operator and you can just take it on a plane. And like, I spent a whole flight, like just doing nothing but like jamming out and making electronic music on this thing. And it looks like a little handheld video game. Um, but the next thing I want to get is they have a, a bigger format, um, instrument with, 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 uh, with piano keys on it. So it'd be better for doing melody. Um, so yeah, check out teenage engineering. They make really cool stuff. Nice. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a few picks of my own. Um, the first one is my wife got me hooked onto the show and it's anyway, it's, it's really interesting, kind of fun to watch. Um, and the premises of the show is that the FBI declassified a whole bunch of files about their manhunt for Hitler after he was presumed dead. And so they're going through these files and they're looking at the feasibility as to whether or not Adolf Hitler might have actually escaped from Germany when the Soviet Union took control of Berlin. And, you know, I mean, any feelings aside, because I know that some people, you know, have, have very deep feelings about uh, World War II and the Nazis and, and the way that they uh, treated people. And 
you know, I'm not condoning any of that. But it's also really, really interesting to just have this historical look on, oh, wow, you know, what, what did it all, what did it all come together as? What, what, you know, what were the possibilities there? And, uh, you know, so they, you know, they look into, okay, well, um, you know, the bunker that they, you know, they found, they had, uh, Hitler's body in and, you know, could he have gotten out and did they actually have his body and things like that? And it turns out that the evidence for him actually committing suicide in that bunker, um, isn't, isn't ironclad. In fact, it's not even close to ironclad. And, you know, and they go into, okay, well, if he would, if he, if he did escape, how would he have done it? And so they're like, you know, finding all these tunnels under Berlin and, they're looking at these places he may have hidden out in Argentina and how he would have gotten to Argentina and where he might have stopped along the way and who he might have talked to and what his network was. And I mean, it's, it's just really interesting. It's like, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, there were all these German refugees after the war in Argentina. Um, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, he had set up this network of tunnels to get him, you know, could have gotten him to the airport. And, you know, all of this stuff is just really interesting. Uh, dive into, you know, what if, um, you know, what if he didn't die in that bunker or, you know, did he even die in that bunker? Cool. What was the show called again? It's called Hunting Hitler. It's a History Channel show. Um, another pick that I have related to this is we've been watching this on Sling TV. So Sling is, uh, um, it's kind of like a pared down cable subscription. So um, it has live TV shows for most of the big cable uh, networks. So, you know, we have, you know, three Disney channels and the History Channel and a couple of news channels and a bunch of sports channels and stuff like that. And I think we're paying like 20 bucks a month for it. Um, incidentally, I find coupons all over the place that will get you a free Roku Express. So, you know, don't go buy it outright. Go find that deal somewhere. Um, my wife found it on Facebook. Um, I've actually found a few like physical coupons on in other devices that I've bought. Um, but, but do that deal and then you get a set top box somewhere that you can put in your bedroom or whatever, wherever you watch TV, that's not your main TV. Or if you don't have a smart TV set up on your main TV, then put it there. But, uh, anyway, so, um, they do have some on demand stuff and that was one of the on demand shows. So we just started season one. I think they're in season four now, but it, it's just fascinating to watch. It's like, Oh yeah, you know, they found this uh castle that was kind of built out in the middle of a jungle in Argentina. You know, oh well there was a sighting of Hitler in nineteen forty seven. He was presumed dead in forty five um in um Brazil, and so they go and they look at, okay, is this feasible? Did these events actually you know, the the surrounding events that we know about actually happen? That was the latest episode that I watched. So anyway, just just really, really fascinating stuff. And I'm kind of a history geek, so that's that's a lot of fun. Um, and then the last, the last pick that I have is that, um, you know, it seems like, uh, we, we have some things that are unfortunate come up and happen. And, uh, you know, the latest one is this school shooting, um, in Florida. And a lot of people are yelling at each other back and forth about what we should do about it. And I, I think, um, in a lot of these cases, I also see this around like diversity in tech and stuff like that. Um, I just want to encourage people to have um, measured, reasoned, civil conversations about this stuff. We all have opinions. We're not always going to agree. But we can, at the very least, um, be respectful of each other and hear out each other's 
um, ideas and thoughts. And even if, you know, even if we wind up challenging each other on what we think, we can still be nice to each other. And so I just want to encourage that because I think, I think more than anything else, um, that will help facilitate, you know, the, the right responses to a lot of this stuff more than yelling that we need to do this thing or the other thing. And so anyway, it's just something I've been thinking about lately. And I, I don't know how to formulate that into a pick that somebody can go you know, pick up, but I think it's important. Your, your pick is tolerance. It sounds like. Yeah. That's a good pick. Well, it's not just tolerance. I think there's, I think there's a uh, communication conversation that needs to happen there too. Yeah. And so, so, so are you going to do a politics podcast sometime? I've been tempted, but I think I would tick people off in a lot of cases because my politics lend to lean way, way, way to the right. Um, and a lot of the people that I associate with, at least in tech, tend to leave a little, lean a little bit to the left. And I, I want to have the conversations with people, but um, if I have the conversations, I know some people are going to yell at me regardless, but um, if it just makes people go and entrench further in um, disagreeing with people on the opposite end of the spectrum, I don't know how productive that is. Um, if I can, if I can open up the dialogue and actually talk about what I think and what I believe and how it affects the overall, um, discussion on things and we can actually have reasoned thought out conversations about this stuff, I would probably do it. Um, but I'm not convinced that it's going to have the one effect and not the other. So. Yeah, it's true. It is too bad. Yeah. I don't know. I would love to have that opportunity too, but it, it does feel like it's important to keep um, keep our technical content distinct. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, if I did the podcast too, yeah, it wouldn't be on devchat.tv. It would be its own thing, and I would I would uh, where people find the intersection of the two. I would basically say, look, um, if you want if you want to enjoy the tech stuff and not worry about where I stand politically, then just don't listen to the other show. But you can't always keep that clean separation. So, yeah. Anyway, I thought about it, but I, I don't know. I don't know if it's worth it. Actually, I have, I have one other quick thing I'd like to mention. Go for it. Uh, one, one other pick. So, um, at angular mix last year, we had this awesome opportunity to go to the, uh, Kennedy space center, um, with the guy who ran the conference. I think his name is Richard. Uh, he showed us around and like taught us all about the rockets. And like we saw the Saturn five and we saw a SpaceX launch, which was cool. Uh, and since then, I was meaning to, to, to find this documentary he suggested that was on HBO in the 90s called From the Earth to the Moon. And then with the with the, the Falcon Heavy launch recently, a lot of us are interested in space again. Uh, and it's this really cool 12 part um, documentary series. Um, and each each episode has a different director. So you have a lot of different styles. Um, and it, uh, it just goes through the whole space race. Um, uh, it's pretty cool to see. Um and it's inspiring that we were able to do that once. Maybe we can do it again. Yeah. So maybe. that's From the Earth to the Moon on HBO. Nice. I'll have to check that out. I've actually thought about doing a space-related show with my 12-year-old. I think that would be a ton of fun. But Yep. I only have so much time. <laughs> yeah, too bad. Yep. All right, Alex. Well, <laughs> if people want to follow you on Twitter or GitHub or if you have a blog or anything like that, uh, where do you put all that stuff? Uh, so my my Twitter handle is Jake Herringbone, um, which actually is like from high school days. I had this friend who went by Bobby Isosceles 
He said I needed a, a lounge name. So anyway, it was just um, it's just silly. So Jake Jake Herringbone, and then I also uh, I post on Medium. Um, so I just those those also um, those also go on my Twitter feed. Uh, I'm working on a post today. I think it's gonna be pretty interesting. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks for coming, Alex. Sure. My I pleasure. I called you Jake after that. <laughs> that would be all right. It's pretty confusing. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll wrap this up and we'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. 